Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Today's episode is a chat with Elisa Tomaskina. You may not have heard of her, but I suspect that you will do soon. Her book, Salt and Time, which is an investigation into Russian heritage and its relationship with food, I think, as well as a recipe book, and she'll describe it better than I do in this chat, indeed she does, is about to come out. It's very clear from my talk with Elisa that she is a powerhouse. She came to see me in our cafe in London with her tiny three-month-old baby in early February 2019, and we sat down in our basement and had a chat. We started off talking about her book, and then we travelled across the world and ended up talking about the difficulties of being a young mother, or indeed father, and covered a lot in between. Anyway, Elisa has very graciously, as she says in this podcast, agreed to come to the Good Life Experience this year, and so that's exciting. And so I will introduce her without further ado. Yeah, so Alicia, um, let's just start where you are now. So you are about to launch your first book. Yes, that's correct. So just tell me a little bit about that. Uh, So the book is called Salt and Time, and it's a collection of recipes inspired by my childhood growing up in Russia in the 80s and 90s. And it's also taps a bit into my interest in Russian cultural history, so... I've researched cookbooks uh, from Soviet days, but also pre-revolutionary cookbooks, and kind of gathered a few recipes that sound quite interesting and adopted them to contemporary um, kind of palettes and ingredients. And also the other kind of aspect of the book is um, drawing on my experience as a chef and kind of a foodie and eater in London and just um, kind of taking contemporary approaches to food and introducing them into um, kind of traditional Russian recipes. So it's a bit of a mix of contemporary and old. So is it one of those cookbooks of which there's a long, rich tradition that is actually something you can read as well as cook from? I hope so. I mean, yeah. that's the idea, is it? Yeah, yes. exactly. So um, my background before I got into food, my background is... Uh, quite academic, so I had a, um, I did a PhD in film studies and I taught uh, film history and I also published some articles. So I love writing and kind of telling stories and um, looking into history specifically because just I find history and especially Soviet history so fascinating. So obviously I couldn't um, write loads in the book, in the cookbook, because, you know, the format is a bit, uh, you know, it's a specific format, but I, I tried to include um, in the introduction to each recipe, I try to include a bit of interesting facts. Um, either it's a history of the recipe, how this dish came about, or if there's a specific ingredient like honey, kind of what is the cultural and, you know, gastronomic significance of honey in Russian cuisine. Right. So kind of just adding a bit of, um, yeah, a bit of kind of background for the reader, you know, so once, you know, once they have the book, they can actually learn something about Russian history and Russian culture, food culture in general, um, I mean, as well as they can... It's, it's very interesting, it. and I, I think, you know, I want to go back over your, your, um, your film uh, study and your, um, all of your cinema supper club mm. as well, which I think mm. seems to be very well known and very well loved. But, but, but Salt and Time is, kind of, is where you're at now, as well as having... Yes. How old is your daughter? Uh, three months. She's three months. I mean, she's, she's 
she's about the calmest three month year old three month old that I've ever yeah. come across. <laughs> Makes me want to have more children. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to. Um, so so you've sort of arrived at this point, and 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 you've done this book, and and this book is is a, essentially rooted in your past. Now, I want to, I want to go back over what you've done, but. Yeah. But Russian cuisine is not something that has a particularly good reputation, no, is it? Not it's at in, all. internationally exactly. And and um, and yes, I imagine that actually this is so. This is partly a defence of that, is it? In a way, I mean, um, yeah, I think Russia as a country has quite a complex role in world history, <laughs> especially yes. now in the you know the last. 10 years or so, but even, you know, looking back into the Soviet days, obviously, um, it's quite a, quite a complex kind of character. Um, but that's what makes it so fascinating. And obviously, I think, um, for me, I'm personally extremely fascinated by the country that I come from, um, especially because I haven't lived there for so long. So I came to the UK um, in the late 90s to study at a boarding school. Um, and... Yeah, just kind of having that strange insider-outsider perspective um, that I find... So, how, so what, what age were you when you came? Fifteen. Right, okay. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Russia until I was 15, but then what they call the formative years actually happened here when I kind of, you know, became an adult and acquired a mind of my own rather than just kind of falling into, you know, what I kind of grew up with and what my parents um, taught me. Um, so yeah, I found it quite useful to actually have that distance because um, it allowed me to, well, hopefully have a more kind of critical perspective of um, what's happening in Russia, but also... Dostoevsky, yeah. the great films, everyone loves that. Yeah. But actually, in my lifetime, yeah. and I'm quite a bit older than you, Russia's always been seen as a bad thing. Absolutely. So, and very few people have any perspective on Russia, yeah. contemporary perspective, yeah. other than through... Very rich people. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, it's more interesting to, for for the reader perhaps mm. to hear. I imagine you know this is an amazing dish, and this is how it came about. Is yeah. that is that? I mean, do you agree with that? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and actually, say something along those lines in the introduction to the book that you know there's. I feel that there's a very um, kind of skewed perspective and image of Russia that so many people have in the West, and it's in a weird way kind of the two opposing ideas that people have in their minds is either, well, especially in relation to Russian food, that, but it also type, uh, taps into kind of the cultural thing that, you know, it's either the Soviets who were starving and had absolutely zero, um, or there's this kind of romanticized idea from Russian novels that, you know, we eat pancakes and caviar and, you know, the gypsies and there's vodka, you know, this kind of culture of excess on the mm. other hand. And obviously it's n- none of that. Um, so I hope that with the book, you know, I do show something a bit more accessible and kind of real, you know, that um, food is something that we all, you know, we all share in any culture and just, you know, regardless of the kind of political and cultural, um, other kind of cultural aspects. Um. So I don't want to draw too many parallels with, with, um, Olya Hercules, Mm. who I know is a friend of yours, but I think that her recipes and her book's quite similar to yours in that I imagine I haven't seen mm. yours yet because it isn't out, but yeah. in that they're, they're more intellectual exercises rather than just cookbooks. But but um, she seems to be cooking from 
really bringing recipes out that she grew up with. Are you doing that or is it a sort of wider cultural look at Russia? Yeah, mine is a bit wider um, in a sense that, um, yeah, I have done research into kind of Soviet and pre-revolutionary cookbooks and also there's a bit of contemporary touch, so kind of my own invention of, um, you know, using classic Russian flavours but making them a bit more, you know, turning them into a dish that's a bit more, yeah, contemporary and kind of London-like yes. in a way, yes. if you know what I mean. Um, and also, um, I mean, you know, there is a stereotype that, like, Russian food, especially Soviet food, it's all kind of, you know, really heavy dishes that are dressed with lots of mayo and um, there are no kind of fresh herbs or interesting spices. So also kind of... And, I mean, it's true in a way. There are lots of dishes which... I think of root vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, of course, you know, kind of historically and culturally, Russian cuisine was quite simple for many reasons, but there are very interesting flavour ingredients. So I would, you know, in the book, I create recipes that kind of draw on the basic flavours, but then kind of elevate them slightly by reducing the mayo or taking away the mayo completely and kind of making certain parts of the dish um, kind of stand out more. Um, Because most of the, well, not most, but a lot of the recipes um, that come from the Soviet days, they were obviously simplified because of the food shortages and then, you know, the whole kind of mass production having to feed this ginormous kind of nation all of a sudden. You know, With long of, winters. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so lots yeah. of the recipes were simplified um, and made a lot more accessible by kind of using cheaper ingredients, obviously not as kind of good quality. So I kind of do the opposite. I take that recipe and, and introduce much better quality ingredients and take away the kind of, again, the mayo and all that kind of stuff mm. that was just used to bulk it up and make it a kind of a mass feeding, you know, device rather than a culinary experience. So let's just, let's just investigate how you came to having Salt and Time published. How did that happen? Oh, um, well, it feels like my whole life has been <laughs> leading, leading to it. Isn't that, that funny, that? I find that so interesting amazing. because when I do new ventures, particularly the Good Life Experience, or we're doing a new venture in Scotland with um, building some cabins and doing a micro yeah, festival there, I always feel like all roads have led to this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so, so, what, so just take me back to how you decided to write Salt and Time and, and, and just tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so, gosh, I don't even know what, what to, to consider as a starting point, but I guess um, part of it is my um, academic background. I've studied um, Russian cinema, but specifically um, looking at... My PhD was about the Holocaust in um, Russian Soviet film, which is very much connected to my personal family history. And so kind of writing, family history and Soviet history was something that I was already very much into uh, but uh, I didn't really feel like academic career is something that I am cut out for it's doing a PhD was quite a depressing <laughs> solitary or yeah yeah it yeah. was I mean it was very hard from every perspective you know intellectually and but the whole kind of lack of social life and just being alone with your thoughts I found it extremely you know the amount of self-doubt and Constantly being in your head is the biggest way to have self doubt is being alone. Yeah. And of course, it's a vicious cycle because the more you're alone, the more you have self doubt, the more you want to be alone. Exactly. But but anyway, (laughs) so so that wasn't quite right. So that wasn't quite right. And um, cooking, in a way, 
was like an antidote to uh, my work. So, you know, I would write for days and days and then actually think, okay, I can't write anymore. I just need to cook, like switch off my head, cook and like invite friends over for dinners. So the more I did that, I was like, oh, I really love, you know, kind of working with my hands and all the kind of creative things that I was missing in my life. They, it felt like cooking was, that's what was kind of giving it back to me. Um, and then at one point I decided to start the supper club, uh, Kino Vino, which is a, you know, kind of marriage of film yeah, so, and food. Yeah, so what does Kino mean? Oh, Kino is... K-I-N-O, isn't uh, it? Film in Russian. I assume so. And um, Vino, we, yeah, we know. We, we can guess we that, one. Know that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but with this supper club, am I right yeah. in saying you were really... It wasn't just having supper and watching a film. You were connecting the food to the film Absolutely. or vice versa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, I always loved and still do uh, films that, you know, they can really s- take you out of the seat, <laughs> you know, and you kind of completely forget where you are physically and you really go on this journey. And, um, you know, the smells and the tastes, you know, if it's depicted really well, you can actually like feel it and taste it. Um, and obviously the same goes for a good meal when you're eating something amazing, it can really like transport you somewhere. So I find that these two qualities are quite pertinent to both mediums. And um, yeah, so kind of the whole point is that you do have this symbolic kind of central journey that, um, and also you learn something through, about it. Through the culture, film and the food, the you mean. Yeah. Food, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it can be kind of a symbolic journey to a particular country or a particular era. And again, the kind of historian in me is always keen to kind of create these experiences where you can learn something about the past or learn something about a new culture, a different culture to your own. Um, so what, so explain to me what you did. So you, I mean, I, I want to find out how you got people to come, but you would, you would have it at home, would you? Or, or uh, so in a, initially, in a venue? Um, and I think it was kind of happening at the time. So that was five years ago. And that was kind of happening at the time when supper clubs were just becoming this new big thing. And so my plan was just to do it at kind of friends' houses and just, team up with, you know, for each event to team up with a friend who, you know, say I do a Greek themed night and I have a Greek friend, so she would cook the meal, I would select the film and then we would have the wine and, you know, have a small informal kind of gathering. Um, so that was the the plan. And then one of these friends happened to be Oli Hercules, who, you know, <laughs> who just published the, the first cookbook and obviously having her um, take part in the project, it kind of immediately elevated the project to a whole new, more professional level. And that was the, the moment when I realized that actually this could be a potential career because, you know, we had press at the event, um, we'd got some publicity. You got really good. I mean, just, just Googling the other day, I mean, okay. you really got, you got, there was lot, there's lots about it online. Oh, amazing. Yeah, do you, don't tell me you haven't learned. I mean, no, I do Google myself, of course, <laughs> but I think it's the whole, like, cachet thing when you, you know, they kind of, the computer knows it's me, so they give me my yes. own results, so when someone else No, no, I Googled it, it was very easy to okay, find out about the, about the supper club, <laughs> yeah. That's good to know. Um, yeah, so I think... Um, kind of having a professional chef attached to the project really changed the whole kind of picture of how I saw it. So you watched a film. Yeah. You had the food at the same time. Yeah. Uh, no, no afterwards. Afterwards, yeah. Afterwards. So I always feel that, you know, if you do it at the same time, you don't really appreciate no. neither of them. And did you do um, kind of decorative things yes, to absolutely. time? Yes, absolutely. Sounds I, amazing. I love, um, uh, yeah, I love kind of, the whole set dressing aspect. And um, yeah, so we do 
pay a lot of attention into the presentation of the table and the design of the menu. So it's also very aesthetic as well as a well. Well, to me, it's well, you know part of one thing. It's you know, food has has to be an aesthetic experience. Absolutely, as well as I it. totally agree. I totally agree. Were you um? So are you still doing that, or are you I taking? Am. Yeah, yeah, as well, well as being a mother and an author and. God, yeah. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I I've taken a break um, since September to have the baby and obviously just settling into the new lifestyle. New lifestyle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm coming back um, with a new programme from March. And how many people come to them at that um, biggest? The biggest one we had, I think it was 55. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. And the kind of the average is around 35. And how, and, and how did you get people to come in the first place? Just friends and contacts? And... Um, well, the... The thing that helped me kind of launch uh, the Supper Club was that I also worked um, as film festivals coordinator and curator, so I kind of had the experience of marketing, kind of cultural marketing and PR. So I just kind of drew on that and kind of contacted a few of my um, contacts in like cultural press, um, some kind of online magazines, and then obviously Instagram was an absolutely amazing yes. tool that well, I think, really I think helped for, build I think my for, career. For aesthetic really. and that, people, yeah, it just yeah, it exactly. just works incredibly exactly. well. Yeah. We've been building our new business just entirely through Instagram so far, and it seems to be working. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's early days. So, okay. So, what what one thing which um, I can't quite see the connection between the book and the film, the the uh, the Kino Vino is that. You haven't talked to me about the sort of aesthetics of the book. Mm. I mean, you're, what I've gathered just now is that, you know, you're, you're an intellectual, you're a cook, you're keen on film. Yeah. And, but you're also an aesthete. Yeah. Is, is the book full of interesting pictures and does it have mention of film? And Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, one of the kind of key things when we spoke about kind of um, taking away the stereotypes of, you know, Russia and Russian food... It's also the aesthetic stereotype that, um, you know, well, not just people in the West have this kind of misconception, but I think, you know, it's a very complex thing. The Russians kind of also build up on that um, iconography of, um, you know, kind of folk, traditional folk Russian, um, whether it's outfits or plates or just kind yes. of, you know, really ornate, very bright, lots of kind of sparkling golden things. It seems like it's opulence or poverty. That's exactly, the image we get. Precisely that. Yeah. 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 So you're trying to explain there's a huge, a vast middle ground. Yeah. And yeah. And also there's, I mean, I'm taking a lot of creative license in the book, so I'm partly worried that people who do like their food very traditional will look at it and say, well, it doesn't look Russian, it doesn't, you know. But that isn't, you've said at the beginning that you're trying to bring it into you know, exactly. I think you characterise as London. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you're tr- you're trying to bring it in, and and are you pleased? Is, have you seen the finished book? I have. Yeah. Are you pleased with it? I'm very pleased with it. Yeah, it's such a bizarre pinch me moment. When does it come out? It comes out on the seventh of March. Okay. So no, it's it's Caroline and I did a book um, for Random House about yeah. seven or eight years ago, and it's it's it was everything we hoped it would be. Amazing. Um, you know, yeah. it, and and it's just such an, an amazing thing to have a book. Yeah, with your name yeah, on that yeah, a real grown-up publisher it's has crazy, done, yeah. <laughs> and I think you have to kind of think, well, it probably won't make me rich, but it's it's a good staging post Absolutely. in my life, yeah. you know. Yeah. On what I I don't like that Definitely. phrase journey, but I but I'm going to use it nonetheless. <laughs> um, yeah. So that so going right back, um, tell me about your childhood before you came to Britain, before you um, 
came to boarding school. Yeah, um, so I was born in 84 in uh, a town called Omsk. It's one of the, well, it's a city actually, one of the cities on the Trans-Siberian um, line. Um, it's close to Kazakhstan. Um, and I come from a mixed, well, as many people who are from Siberia, because Siberia is such a you know, fascinating place. It's a bit of a kind of melting pot of cultures from Central Asia, the Far East, and um, the West. And I'm talking from kind of looking at the map from a Russian perspective here. Um, so my background is that my mom's family um, is um, Ukrainian Jewish, and they, um, they have this amazing story of uh, kind of escaping the Holocaust and ending up in Siberia. So it's um, something that really... Kind so of had tell, me, tell me what you know about that. They, they, they moved from Ukraine right the way, I mean, across to Siberia. That's, yeah. that's an... Ex- I mean, how many miles is that? Thousands. Oh, thousands. I it's, mean, yeah. It's a really incredible story. And actually, my, um, so my great-grandmother, she is... Um, a huge inspiration and a huge influence on me. Um, and it's kind of her amazing story um, that when the Nazis came to Ukraine in um, 41, 1941, um, um, well, I'm going to do a little detour, <laughs> just a quick detour into my Holocaust studies that, you know, in the West we have this perception of the Holocaust as a death camps and this kind of Schindler's List scenario. But, you know, the... Before that, there was actually the Holocaust of the Soviet Jews in um, former Soviet territories like Ukraine and Belarusia, and there were no death camps then. They were just rounded up in woods and shot um, in the woods. Um, and um, and the right the way across um, the uh, Baltic states. Exactly. As well. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of you know the edge of Russia that yeah. borders um, Eastern Europe. Um, so and they all kind of you know there were massive um, no- notices everywhere saying you know all Jews have to come to this meeting point. And the pretense was that they're going to be resettled for work, whereas in reality they were taken to a local wooden shot. And somehow my great-grandmother just had this sense that, you know, there's something wrong with this, I'm not going to go. Um, and she, my grandfather then was around five or six, and, um, and her husband was already evacuated to Siberia because he was an engineer, so he was sent, uh, when the Nazis were invading, the, the Soviet Union kind of sent all the assets away from the, you know, further from the line. Um, so my great-grandfather was already sent away to work in a factory to manufacture. In Siberia. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so she, essentially my great-grandmother was alone with her son um, and she left him with the neighbours. I mean, now being a mother now, I can't even imagine what she must have felt. Just Well, she knew she would not survive with him on this horrible journey that she had to take. Um, but she knew that, you know, his chances of survival are a bit high if he is... A child, because he was a child. Because he was a child, yeah. yeah. So she left him with the neighbours um, and he kind of lived in a cellar for the rest of the war. And she just made this, comp- you know, crazy journey on her own, you know, a young woman in her 30s, all the way across to Siberia to join her husband... And, um, I mean, I've spoken lots to her about it, but, you know, there's just so much time has passed that there are so many gaps in the story, so I don't know exactly all the details of how she made it to Siberia, but I know that, you know, she would kind of sleep in um, haystacks at night and hide in some, you know, it's just... Incredible. 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 Yeah, yeah. and then presumably um, walk into Russia across the straits at the... 
uh, on the Baltic? Um, I've got no idea. I imagine, yeah, no, amazing. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely yeah. amazing. And so, anyway, so so sort of fast forward. <laughs> yeah. You're born, yeah. You know, so I was um, born, 1984. Yeah. Um, things are things are beginning to change in Russia. Um, well, I, yeah, I guess they. It felt like they were really beginning to change in the late 80s and early. Well, no, probably early 90s. And I actually grew up with my great grandmother and um, and very close to my. Um, grandparents as well, so kind of my maternal side of the family, we kind of shared a flat. And um, even though it was a bit of a kind of clamped <laughs> existence, but, you know, for a child, it's quite amazing to have um, your mom, your grandma and your great grandma, and kind of having three generations of women raising me and obviously feeding me, which was a huge... Amazing, yeah. Um, yeah, influence and an inspiration. And um, yeah, I just kind of remember all this wonderful evenings when you know my granny would um and my mom would like ferment cucumbers and there were like jars of um, cucumbers on the floor covered with some muslin cloths or something or you know my great-grandma would make um easter bread and she would wake up at night to start you know to start the starter for the breads and you know just kind of all this obviously you know childhood memories they're all kind of tinted with this really kind of romantic mystical yes. <laughs> tone yeah so i have this very vague memories of her being there in the kitchen at night in her white robe and it all just looks so beautiful and kind of yeah magic <laughs> but um but then you were you were sent away if that's the right verb i, was I mean you sent came away. you yeah. came um tell me about that you came a long way away from home to I, boarding yeah, school in this country um, well it's interesting because um my my mum, specifically, she was a bit of a kind of rebel teen in the Brezhnev years, and she was really kind of obsessed with Western culture. And she had this dream to live abroad since she kind of, you know, since she was a teenager. And that seemed completely impossible to her, so she always hoped that one day maybe her children will be able to move abroad and have that Western life that she always hoped for. So kind of as soon as I um, could remember, I remember that there was this kind of notion of let's move abroad if we can. And I remember they even tried to apply for visas to South Africa of all places, um, some, somewhere else. And on New Zealand, there was this constant kind of want to move away from the Soviet Union. And then finally, when you know, the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, and then um, my parents were one of the lucky ones who kind of found their feet in this new chaotic regime and had the financial means to send me away um there was no brainer that i'd go to england because we like were quite an anglophile family with you know British. did you speak english at this point i did yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. i learned english in school in you know in the russian state school but also had a private tutor and so i was always kind of geared up for that mm, mm. <laughs> moving yes. away scenario and and then yeah finally when it i just felt when i was 15 i felt that i'm ready to move now because i thought if i do a bit of school here, it'll be easier for me to get into university. Yes, and but it's very, I mean, it's very brave. I mean, I, I was sent away to boarding school when I was half that age. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was miserable for a long time. And then I loved it later on. Absolutely loved oh, it. Oh, I but, was miserable too. But, but I mean, <laughs> the, the idea of, of coming, you know, this huge distance yeah. was, was qu I mean, you must have been quite a strong character to have, to have even conceived of doing that. Um, yeah, I suppose so. But um, I was... Like, I obviously didn't see it that way, and um, I just thought I definitely have nothing to do in Omsk um, in terms of... I was quite a kind of creative child and, you know, 
fascinated by cinema and theater and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I always felt like I would move away at one point. Yes. And then it just, I don't know how exactly it all came about that it was that so it was, was it equal parts for you at that age, sort of 14 or 15, was it equal parts the pull of the West and the push away from... Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. just knew you didn't Definitely. want to be there forevermore. Definitely. Yeah. Did, 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 um, did your city feel sort of negatively oppressive at that um, age? It was or? quite bleak, yeah. Um, I think it's just... Well, from the aesthetic point of view, again, it's yes. you know, one of those industrial post-Soviet spaces that is a bit, you know, kind of fell through the cracks and, mm. you know, it just looks quite grey and, I mean, the weather, there are really hot summers, but, you know, quite cold winters and um, so, yeah, being there was quite, I found it a bit... Um, yeah, OK, so I've, but I find it fascinating. I mean, I'm always so amazed by... Um, people who come over um you know from far away and, yeah. i mean in fact caroline my wife caroline yeah. traveled a lot and was sent sent to boarding school and loved it but but it's a big thing to do isn't it it is i mean clearly is. on one yeah. hand it's a massive privilege because you're very very lucky but on the other hand it's pretty scary do you yeah. remember did you come over by yourself the first uh, time no i came with my parents um and i think it's one of those um, maybe I did it because I had no idea how tough it's going to be. Maybe if yes. I knew, <laughs> if I had any idea, I probably would have hesitated quite I a lot. I think that's true in life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. probably easier to have this, you know, take this crazy leap um, without knowing what exactly is going to happen to you. Um, so, yeah, I when it was time to move, um, my parents came with me. You know, we brought things like duvets. And, you know, it was quite a huge Yes. Have you got <laughs> siblings, by the way? No, no, no it's okay. just me. So, yeah. like, for my parents, it was quite kind of traumatic. I'm very close with my mom. She was quite a young mom. So, you know, at the time when I was 15, she was like 30-something. Um, you know, so we had quite a fun kind of time together. So, for her to lose her friend was quite a big yes. thing as yeah. well. Um so yeah, we came all together, and yeah, I remember really well. Well done. <laughs> um, the eve it was in the evening, and it was um, dinner time, and we went to the canteen, and then kind of seeing the food a little bit like oh gosh. <laughs> oh really? Okay, yeah. It was like a Sunday evening, and that wasn't the time when they kind of do their best yes. <laughs> in the kitchen. No, so but I they like, never, the, the, I don't think the food was ever particularly and good. Yeah. Pizzas and like ketchup thinking, my and God, give me potatoes and, and, um, <laughs> and anything. <laughs> yeah, and I was a bit like, oh God. But anyway, so that, um, that really, do, you, do you feel in retrospect that, whereabouts did you go to school, in England? Or? Um, it was in Kent. Okay. Yeah, it was a really beautiful, um, well, it was a girls' school as well, which was an extra added kind of... Yes, strangeness. Strangeness. Yeah. Um, but it was a beautiful old building in the field, you know, so it was like a Jane Eyre kind of novel coming were you, um Were you a subject of interest amongst your contemporaries or were there other Russian girls there? Um, there were very few Russian girls there, I think three or four maybe. So out of, I forgot how many, like 200, you know, four is quite a I think Caroline number. was made to stand on a desk at her first state school and speak because she had a funny oh accent <laughs> by the you know That's, by the other kids oh but you wow. weren't made to do any of that stuff <laughs> no but no. I did feel I mean it was an international school so that was right you know I, even though there were a few Russians but there were other people that were not English no no <laughs> and so there was a quite a big variety of accents plus the school was close to a town called Gravesend and the accent there was just like what yeah <laughs> is that yes. English I don't yeah. understand a word do you think that that's given you um 
you know, a, a sort of fearlessness and a kind of ability to navigate and find your own way, that, that experience of coming over here? Um, I hope so. But I, because it was, it was really traumatic. <laughs> I didn't realise how difficult no. it would be. And having kind of gone through that and finally settled and, you know, got to the stage where I actually feel really comfortable and at home in the UK made me also less adventurous to travel elsewhere because I was like, well, I'm not sure. I've kind of just settled in. I'm not sure I want to kind of uproot myself again and go anywhere else. And I feel like I've kind of missed out on a few fun opportunities to travel a bit more because I felt a bit like, oh, I'm You've done not it. sure. Yeah, yes. I've kind of done enough yes. of travelling. That's, and... in- that's interesting. But, yes, because because it, it was also traumatic. Mm. And, but so how long did it take you to be happy there and to make friends and...? Um, I well, I think it's actually interesting. The time when I actually really felt um, kind of grown up and at home was only about ten years ago. Out of twenty okay. total, is quite yeah, out of twenty five years. Yeah, or whatever. yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it was the time when my my best friend moved here from Russia. Um, so kind of having her felt like it's you know my Massive part of my bonus. family. Yeah. yeah, and then I met my partner. Um, and I guess that was quite a big, big deal too, to kind of have a boyfriend and kind of have a... Yes. Yeah, so I think it's the last 10 years that I've kind of... Really settled. Really settled, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and just so, that, that's, it's interesting, and I, I want to find out a bit more about the intervening years. But are you, I mean, you're clearly, um, you know, intellectually very capable, very energetic and very determined and focused. But how are you mm. managing to juggle all of these different things? Having a, a, your first child and mm. your first book in the space of sort of six yeah. months as well as everything else is uh, I mean you seem serene <laughs> are you are you paddling extremely hard beneath the surface um, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah um well the last year was really incredible um I got my book deal and then literally when I was getting ready to go for the first shoot um, in Siberia in winter, I found out that I was pregnant, and that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> um, a pleasant one, but pleasant still, one. Um, yeah. I was so focused on the book, and I thought, like, this is the year, and the next year is definitely dedicated to the book. But then, obviously, my daughter decided, yes, <laughs> no, I have to make my appearance. The now. best laid plans, yeah. and all that, yeah. So it has been very overwhelming emotionally, and just like intellectually as well. I just like, how do I grasp? And how do you? Um, I don't know how to feel. Give yourself time, I think, really, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a way, it's actually, um, to be honest, I found um, kind of the first months of motherhood extremely hard, um, and not many women speak out about how difficult it actually can be. Well, they, you know, kind of the hormones and the lack of sleep and just your body suddenly acquires a completely different purpose that you've never kind no, of... No, they don't. It's funny, isn't it? Well, I think part of the problem, and I, I think... A lot of men find it difficult as well in different ways. I think part of the problem is that everyone's saying nothing to you except for how fantastic, well mm, done, mm. the greatest thing that'll ever happen. Yeah. You know, and actually there's an element, however happy you are, and of course yeah. you're happy, where yeah. you're thinking, Jesus, this is not the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's no. sheer hell. Exactly. And, and I, think, I think, you know, there's, there's a, the, the, there isn't enough discussion with that mm. because you're, if you're told constantly by other people how you should think... Yeah. Is that right, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a very, I mean, I kind of battle with this whole, um, again, ideology of, like, femininity, what a woman should be, and, you know, and I kind of felt like I'm almost 
you know, I'd rather not have kids to kind of prove the point that you don't, you know, need to have kids to be a woman and and then kind of getting pregnant <laughs> by Change surprise. That. I was like, oh, yeah. well, maybe I can, you know, I can do both and try to yes. still have a career and be a mom and be a good mom, you know. Um, but yeah, the, so the first months when I was really struggling, having the book plans kind of kept me sane. Yes. So in a way, yeah. even though it felt a bit overwhelming to have these two huge tasks coincide, it did help keep me a bit more sane and a bit kind of connected to my old self. Yes. As a, you know, as so a writer, transitional as a, kind exactly. of, yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I thought it was actually a good thing. Yes. Because <laughs> I would have probably struggled a lot more if I didn't have work or the excitement of the book to kind of keep me a bit focused. Yes. No, that, that's interesting. And did, did you find good support for, the, I mean, did you find people who you could sort of, you know, share these concerns with, if that, if concerns is not too light a word? Um, yeah, I mean, it's very hard. Yeah, it's a bit of a taboo, isn't it? Because you're supposed to be happy and you're supposed to love it. And so it's a bit strange to actually say, well, no, I, I'm not loving it. I'm finding it very hard, actually. Um, but I did have a few friends who were young mothers. And actually, Oli as well, she was really supportive, kind of having... She has a yes. son. Um, um, so, yeah, I think... It was good to have the network of I think women. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I, as I say, I think, you know, not enough men talk about it. But yeah. when it is brought up, a lot of men find themselves, I think, quite, actually quite helpless. Yeah. Not knowing what they're meant to do and think yeah. as well. So yeah. I think it's it's good to actually kind of bring it to the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, of course, there's nothing more miserable than sitting there feeling miserable and not daring to say anything to everyone because everyone's and saying, how amazing, yeah. you must be delighted. Yeah, and you're thinking, exactly. actually, I feel dreadful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, seeing you with six children, I can <laughs> well, feel very inspired. Well, we were very it. lucky. We were very lucky. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, we, we definitely went through very difficult times and it was, you know, brutal hard work. Mm. And we, like you, were trying to do our own projects. And, and I yeah. don't think, you know, we occasionally had a bit of help from... Um, people, but we generally did most of it by ourselves. But I, you know, it was also the most amazing thing. Yeah. But I think the point that I have is that you have to also kind of acknowledge that it's it's very 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 hard, mm. yeah. um, and it is very very hard. Anyway, I think it seems like you're doing a great job. <laughs> so, um, well, did you just just before we end, did you speak to Caroline about the good life experience? Yes. I yes. Have, yeah. And are you going to come? Absolutely, I'd love Brilliant. to. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> are we going to try and do something with? Um, sort of Kino Vino thing. Yes, I'm actually doing um, my own Kino Vino in a way. So, you know, every Kino Vino that I do has a guest chef and I kind of curate and host. But uh, when the book comes out, um, I'm going to do a book launch special Kino Vino where I'll be kind of doing everything. How fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so there'll be recipes from the book. But I have an amazing team of chefs that I've worked with, um, kind of sous chefs that I've worked with. So they'll... I can trust them to make a really amazing menu out of my book, yeah. And and um and the book um you can pre-order it. You can and it's out in, in early March anyway. So where, is yeah. is it is it's useful to pre-order it, is it? Apparently From, so. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I'm so new to this world, but my publisher said there's some kind of something that <laughs> it notices. The algorithm yeah. notices. And 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 is there any way you can do that other than Amazon? Can you do it you can um, do it in bookshops. Presumably. You can do it in bookshops, yeah. yeah. And Amazon obviously is the easiest. I know, but I, I yeah. you know, I feel but like I should be championing. Like, yeah, well, I yeah. should be championing. Yeah, non Amazon. Great. Well, thanks. This is so much. Oh, that was brilliant. Thank pleasure. you to you both. Thank you so that much. was really lovely. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you very much, Elisa. Thank you also to you very much for listening to this. And thank you to my friend Jim Friend for editing this. Don't forget that you can pre-order this book and that would clearly be useful for Elisa. So uh, please go online and pre-order it. Or if it's out whilst you are listening to this, go online and buy it. Or don't go online. Go to your local bookshop. Anyway, pre-order it or buy it. Thanks so much. I will see you very soon. Thanks for joining me. Bye. Bye.